This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to The Hub on Screen on RN or your podcast feed. I'm Jason DeRosso and this is your weekly appointment with film and TV news, reviews and discussion. Today I'll interview the director of Lebanon's Oscar entry called The Insult, an incendiary thriller about a neighbourhood feud across religious lines that begins with a dodgy drain pipe. But first, I want to take a look at two new seasons of two award-winning shows, season two of Netflix's Ozark and season five, it's a great week to be talking about this one, of ABC TV's Rake, in which Cleaver Green has somehow been elected an Australian senator. This clip is from the beginning of the season opener, which, by the way, won its time slot in the ratings last Sunday with a million viewers. With Cleaver Green on the left-hand side, there's a bit of a donkey vote, a bit of confusion, and he seems to be polling very well at the moment. You're right. Most of his atrocities before actually... I mean, his record is there for the public to see, and yet there is a possibility that he's going to be elected as a senator. I think you're in, Cleve. We won't know for a bit, but it looks like you're going to be a senator. So it seems there was some confusion about the meaning of green on the ballot. My clients are screaming green murder. Even the ABC guy, his name is Green. Anthony Green. It's greens, greens everywhere like a family conspiracy. And yet the people seem to have spoken, Jack. Yes, uh, two very, I, I would suggest, shows based around two very jaded characters for our jaded times. Um, joining me to discuss both shows, <laughs> but we're going to start with Rake, is uh, Lauren Carroll-Harris hey. from The Guardian. Hi, and uh, Craig Matheson from Fairfax. How are you, both of you? Uh, Hello. Feeling jaded? Excellent. <laughs> I'm feeling good. Yeah. It's livened. <laughs> You're feeling good like Cleaver Green. He's coming out a bit of a winner. I love the fact that the idea that he gets in as a senator is partly based on a whole lot of donkey votes, but also partly based on this um, typographical situation we've got with green being spelt with three <laughs> E's as opposed to the greens and... Uh, which I found quite funny. Um, now, Lauren Carroll Harris, I know you're a real fan <laughs> yeah, of, of Rake. Fifth season. Yeah, I, There are some of us, me included, who, I mean, I don't dislike this show, but I sort of scratch my head as to how <laughs> it manages to keep rolling out yeah. season after season. I mean, what is it about Cleaver Green, first of all, as a character, do you think, that has has this longevity? Why do people keep wanting to come back to him. It is the character of Cleaver Green. He's so dissolute. You know, I see this show as one about someone in kind of middle age who really can't get it together. They can't get their life together. And I find that quite relatable. But, you know, I guess it, it is important to say that it's not at all part of this kind of cinematic cinematic age of golden television. Like it's very talky, Sunday night, kind of ABC old school program. But I think that's the appeal for me. Like I grew up on Sea Change um, <laughs> and that kind of shared a similar sensibility of people being kind of fed up with things and not quite sure what to do about it. And, you know, it's kind of like, well, not everything, not all shows need to be um, like Mad Men or um, Incredibly The Sopranos. Slick. Yeah. Not all shows need to be prestige yeah. television. Richard Roxburgh, how do you rate his performance? How does he play <laughs> this? Because I'm always surprised to see him so impish in the role. You say he's middle-aged and he is, of course, mm. but there's something, there's a kind of impish teenage giggle. Yeah, he has this energy, I think, this vitality. I mean, yeah, it's really his role. I don't know where he ends and where Cleaver Green starts. Um, and I think that's part of the appeal. He is co-producer on it yeah, as well, we should it's say. it's really his project. And it's yep. a melodrama, really, about the way that, you know, uh, people's lives become forever entwined. You know, like his former sex worker now has a baby with his son. <laughs> like it's a ridiculous program. And so I think it makes sense now that they've located... It's a sex worker girlfriend or something. Part, yeah, right. they yeah. were really in yeah. love. Yeah. Um, and now... Now, this kind of very silly, ridiculous, farcical sensibility is set in Parliament, which totally makes sense with the feel of now. Yeah. Uh, Craig, what do you make of Rake Season 5, what you've seen of it? Um, and, and I mean, do you think Cleaver Green does have longevity or are you over him as a character? You know, is he, has he been rebirthed and given new vitality with this move to Canberra? 
Well, I think it's very clever to give him a new environment to stuff things up in. Um, I'm starting to think that Rake is nostalgia, that mm. it's lovable rogue television. Um, it's and definitely that, isn't it? Why, why nostalgic, though? Well, because we've gone through the age of the of the the antihero and the and making dramatic things out of out of failure and moral compasses going adrift. I mean, this man's moral compass just is doing the full three sixty the whole time, and it's comical. Um, you know, he's sort of he's failing upwards. I mean, in a way, it's a send up of the of you know the well educated. Um, you know, privileged man who just can't really do much but keeps succeeding. I mean, now he's a senator. He was, you know, a, a, a successful lawyer before that. Um, I'm, I'm a little doubtful about how they're going to stretch things out in terms of Canberra because, you know, the the stakes are higher and it's a, it's a very strange environment. I mean, already in the first episode you have uh, what appeared to be a chemical attack on the Australian yes, Parliament. that's right. Um, uh, so yeah. it's, it's very hard to make the world of rake, I think, you know, fully work in that sort of environment where, where Americans are saying, well, we're going to have a nuclear war tomorrow. Yeah, well, Anthony LaPaglia pops up as the uh, Secretary of Defence visiting Canberra. And yes, the world is on the cusp of global war. He turns out to be an old drinking buddy, <laughs> uh, euphemistically <laughs> described, I suppose, but um, an old drinking buddy of Cleaver Green. I, 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 I'll play a clip from that in a tick, but uh, from that meeting. But I want to pick up on what you say about this idea of this, I suppose, uh, using the jargon of today, he's this white privileged middle-aged guy who's falling up. There is something about Cleaver Green also that's um, optimistic. And I think you're right in he is an anti-hero, but he's not the anti-hero that we're used to seeing in prestige television drama and that we're going to perhaps mm. talk about in a moment with Ozark and Jason Bateman, who plays a money launderer, and that's a much darker sort of um, sort of show. He's an optimist in the end, which which strikes me as quite strange. But has he just swung around to this optimistic position recently or is that no. what keeps him getting out of bed in the morning? I think that the show is not a cynical program and that's part of people's love for it in that we are living in this kind of like really dank age of mega irony and mega cynicism and in fact the show is quite optimistic about family coming back together and um, keeping people in your life who were important to you in previous relationships and things like that but like one of the central ironies of the character of Cleaver Green was even that he even when he made a successful career for himself out of, you know, defending cannibals, for example, yeah. <laughs> defending like quite indefensible people. As a barrister, that's right, of course. Criminal he's come, barrister. He's a yeah. criminal barrister. Actually, was... he had this real belief in the legal system and, and injustice and that everyone has the right to a defence. And so I, I kind of wonder if they haven't quite addressed that enough in the latest season. Like now Cleaver is not just a senator, but he's a crossbencher in parliament. And so he kind of has balance of power a little bit. Does he believe in politics in Australia? <laughs> Does he believe in Parliament as a vehicle for change? I'd really love to see if they kind of address whether you can have social change through those avenues in Australia. Let's hear some of that meeting between Cleaver Green and the US Defence Secretary, Secretary played by Anthony, Anthony LaPaglia. Um, this is where they meet in uh, Cleaver Green's makeshift office in the old Parliament House because new Parliament House has been evacuated at this point in in yeah about midway through the first episode of this new season uh, after this mysterious chemical attack. Anyway, here's that meeting between two old buddies. <laughs> How the hell did you become a senator anyway? <laughs> Uh, well, there may have been a little bit of confusion with people voting green, but they were voting green with an extra E. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> Beautiful. I love it. Tonight we got a party like it's 1999. Do you remember that party in 1999? Oh, mate. I'll never forget. Professor Wasabi and his many coloured oh, curls. God. And his little sidekick with the skin. Skin tab. Couldn't take your eyes off. No. That's why I want to have a party. Old party, old time, like we used to. We could do it at your place. You know my Secret Service boys? Couple of hookers. Come on. Uh, not really, mate. Not mine. No. I mean, you know, the fact that I'm an Australian senator is obviously irrelevant, but you're the US Defence Secretary. Plus, there's a bit of an issue with one of my neighbours just at the moment. Some, some bad feng shui. Yes, it's one so of his, <laughs> his neighbours happened to be Asian, so there's something um, 
slightly on the nose the way he talks about that. Anyway, that's a whole subplot we perhaps don't have time to go into there, um, which involves Cleaver Green sort of appearing naked out the front of his house and so forth and being accused of being a pedophile. Um, But that was interesting there because he talks about being a member of the Australian Senate. Well, that doesn't matter, but you are the American Defence Secretary. And so there is a sense that somewhere at rock bottom, at least, or at, at the foundation of who Cleaver Green is, there's some kind of sense of... Yeah. Morality and or dignity. ethics. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, he was elected on a kind of honest policy of um, promising um, no politics, no change and no bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> so in a sense, like he does actually stand for something and, and that is, you know, calling um, out politicians on on their lies. <laughs> you know what I don't like Does about he, this, though, because yeah. he keeps he keeps saying these things, and then they'll cut to him sort of making those same mistakes. Gaffs. I feel. Well, yeah. I yeah. guess that's part of that lovable rogue appeal. What 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 I what I don't like about this show is I just wish it could be a little bit better. It's quite ambi- <laughs> it is quite ambitious. Richard Roxburgh is often looking like he's half riffing some of these yeah. lines. I don't think he's the best comic in the world. Um, he's okay. He's endearing on screen, I think. Um, but even just visually, I mean, we we have in this season one of uh, episode one of season five, we have a moment where um, there are four helicopters, obviously CGI'd on top of Parliament House, oh, yeah. sort of draping some big <laughs> sheet of plastic or something over. It looks so phony. <laughs> right. But it's ambitious. Now, that yeah. maybe that phoniness in that shot is kind of okay and is in keeping with the whole satirical and thing the of it. Yeah. But if, if you compare this to something like Utopia, which I like a, a bit more, oh, actually, really? as a See, satire. See, that's a deeply of, cynical program, that is, well, and that's, that's a, why it's not as successful, I think. You don't think? Yeah. Ah, that's Because I, well, I think it writes checks that it can cash, though, in terms of it plays with that whole doco drama feel. It's actually less ambitious, though, because It is every less ambitious, but I think it works have, because it's less ambitious. Utopia has a structure whereby every episode is almost exactly the same, where they give themselves a very glib political problem to solve and then they come up with a marketing or PR kind of solution to it. So it lacks that humanity. It also lacks... But I think that... Like well, the, this might be true, but I think yeah. the tone's better realised. I, I think, think like Rake works in the way that Seinfeld works for me and like you build this endearment and this love for the characters and the, the way the actors um, re- express themselves through the characters and that they become one and the same. And so over years, your love for it just grows. <laughs> Craig, what's your thoughts on the comparison? And I want to move on to Ozark in a, in, in, in a short while, but uh, what's your thoughts on the comparison between Rake and something like Utopia, you know, starring Rod, Rob Sitch, Working Dogs, um, sort of doco drama, very, <laughs> a very clever, I think, um, satire on Canberra bureaucracy? Well, I think Rake isn't a satire, which is yeah, what separates right. them. And I think, but I think, but that's what worries me about taking Rake to Canberra because it almost begs for more satire. I mean, you know, you put him on the cross benches. I mean, does this almost make us laugh at the cross benches, which have been a cesspit in some ways of mm. Australian politics mm. and a real problem? I mean, does Rake keep apologising for things that we should actually care about? Um, and that's fine because, you know, everyone wants to hang out with Cleaver Green. I mean, I think one of the great things on the show is just his ability to to be cheerful and meet people. It's it's almost like I think the success of Rake in a way is about I'd like to meet that guy. Yeah. Um but that worries me when you when you pushing it into into different realms and taking it out of maybe that sort of rarefied Sydney legal circle, which is already a sort of a bizarre place. All right. Well, the new season, season five of Rake has just uh, begun rolling out. Uh, The first episode uh, went to air and is available on iView. It went to air uh, last week. We're up to our second episode now. Many more episodes to come. So we will watch. Um, Fascinated to see how (laughs) how his um, crazy journey through Canberra, Canberra politics Moulds him and moulds the nation, I guess. Um, on uh, the Hub on screen, I'm talking to guest TV critics Craig Matheson from Fairfax, Lauren Carol Harris from The Guardian. Let's move on to Ozark now, Netflix's uh, show, which is into its second season. Jason Bateman, Laura Linney, a married couple with a couple of kids, middle class, white, average in a lot of ways, but they're money launderers and they find themselves in an escalating deadly game with drug lords south of the border in in Mexico and uh, all sorts of very nasty cartels 
uh, in their own country, in the States as well. Um, they've just escaped death in season one, and now it looks like they're uh, digging a deeper hole for themselves, trying to get planning approval for a casino. I am such a fan of Jason Bateman. Yeah. And I'm kind of new to this show. I was oh. surprised that there are a lot of naysayers. Yeah. Um, he's been nominated for an Emmy for directing in this season, also nominated for an acting uh, Emmy as well. Craig, you a fan of Ozark? I am, Jason. I think it's been underappreciated in a lot of ways. I think it's it's a really fascinating show to me about the illusion of middle-class safety. You know, you've got this family and you think everything's great. They're in Chicago, jobs and everything, but the mother's having an affair, the father is a money launderer, and they have to flee almost certain death. And it really, it they have to see a different America and meet different Americans and they have to change themselves and take risks. So I find it, it quite fascinating socially. And then it's very, very well drawn as, a, as an intricate sort of... Um, domestic and, and sort of social drama with these very different classes of people. It is interesting that it has been described as being this kind of um, travelogue almost through. Mm. It's not just about this culture clash between the Mexican cartels and them. It's about a culture clash between them and people of the South. I mean, Ozark refers to um, this region in Missouri, right, where um, people traditionally go on holiday, but apparently it's also a bit of a haven for all sorts of dodgy dealings in, in the financial industry. But what do you make of uh, Ozark? And what do you make of this comparison, Lauren, that with Breaking Bad, which is kind of the gold standard when it comes to these sorts of shows about middle-class white people who fall off the edge of the world? Yeah, that's right, because it has that moral ambiguity and it's about a middle-aged white man in his family unit um, who's really going off the edge in a lot of ways. But but then I think the comparison is actually a little bit superficial because as I see it, Breaking Bad was about a good man becoming bad and really going into the depths of evil. And facing, there was that terminal cancer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Facing mortality in yeah. a very real kind of mythic way, very yes. archetypal way. And turning into bitterness. This doesn't This doesn't. This, doesn't this is actually that. about a good man, played by Jason Bateman, who's not a nice man. He's not likeable. And I think it is terribly morally ambiguous and that's why it hasn't been adored the way it should be because people, when you talk to people about it, they all have a different idea about <laughs> what it's about and what it's saying. It's actually very dark. Let me play a clip. This is Jason Bateman uh, talking to the wife, played by Laura Linney, uh, Language Morning. There is some strong language ahead. So that's it. We go back in that house, we go to bed, we wake up in the morning, we kiss the kids. That's, that's exactly what we do. We make the pancakes and, and ask the kids what's going on with school and we just keep trying to figure out a way out of this, Wendy. We're responsible. What for? All of it. No, we're not. Another man is dead. Because of his choices. You know, he didn't have to try to cover up a murder, okay? And just like Darlene didn't have to kill Dell in the first place or Russ and Boyd didn't have to decide to try to kill me or Mason. Should have stayed out on the water, should have stayed on the fucking water. And, uh, you know, you know, people make choices, Wendy, choices have consequences. You and I, we don't have to live under the weight of those decisions. should point out this, this is a beautiful looking series. Mm. Um, mm. doesn't look like Breaking Bad. It's much no. more sort of monochromatic. It's very Blues green. and greys. Blues and greys. Well, I did Cold. read some, one critic, I think in The Hollywood Reporter, talking about how he just wanted to see some colours. after. <laughs> no. It's a, it's a grey-green world. And because it is set in Missouri, it's not the Midwest that we've seen of the US before. And you do get this beautiful sense that all this wonderful emerald green forest will be sold off as real estate. And that's another kind of lie of the American mm. dream. Craig, is, yeah. I was just going to say, you know, that clip was was really instructive because you can hear that glibness that Jason Bateman yeah. has always had as a comic actor, so droll. which has always been amusing. And it's like, you know, he'll be in the name of comedy laughing off terrible things. And he does exactly the same thing with much the same tone in the name of drama here. And I think that's one of the things that throws people because mm. he's not conflicted. He's trying to survive. And the question is more, how how many people will he put on his lifeboat in the end? And who's he going to bring with him? Is he going to bring his family with him? Because, you know, at the start of the show, instead of him trying to protect his wife, they're at, they're at each other's throats. He's you know, got her <laughs> under surveillance at the start of the show. So I think that's one of the, again, it's almost a polar opposite, I think, of Breaking Bad yeah. in that way. Mm. And the shadowy and the, observation they're making about marriage as well, because that's so true what you're saying, Craig. Like this 
life of crime has become this couple's project. It's become the project of their relationship. It and it's brings them, them back closer. together. Yeah. And they love together, it. Yeah. They, the power turns them on. They have sex after they kind of like pull Close a new a deal. deal. Or, yeah. yeah. And there's this wonderful gender um, critique as well where Laura Linney's character, Wendy Bird, you know, abandoned a career in politics to devote her time to her family, but that's actually perfectly prepared her for this life of money laundering. <laughs> yeah, no, it's uh, from what I've seen of it, and, and I haven't seen as much of it as as you both. Um, I think it's wonderfully made. Yeah. Um, there is, as I say, there there is a sense from a, a couple of the US critics that this second series doesn't change gears enough. I guess I, I wait and see if I agree with that. But um, I, I agree also that I think Jason Bateman is wonderful. And, and you know, he's one of those characters who, because he's all about understatement, whether he's doing comedy or drama, um, in a very high stakes mm. kind of show like this, a show about life and death where minuscule errors can mean life or death, when you see a flicker of doubt or fear <laughs> yeah. in his his face, it's like he amplifies yeah. the tension because he's so understated. Because his straight man persona yeah. ruptures in a second. Yeah. And I think that's what's uh, you know incredibly effective. Um, Ozark is on Netflix season two, drops, as they say, on Australian Netflix uh, at the end of, in just a few days, at the end of August. Look, thanks both of you for coming in and uh, talking to us about these two uh, <laughs> shows that I think have a lot to offer in this particular moment. <laughs> Not um, both Rake and Ozark. Thanks to the both of you. Thank you. Pleasure. It's Lauren Carroll Harris from The Guardian and Craig Matheson from Fairfax, our regular TV critics. You're listening to The Hub on Screen. <laughs> هدول الشباب شو عم بيعملون؟ بعدين هاي ليه هيك؟ خليه يطلع فوق للطابق الرابع، حكينا مع الجيران. ايوه معك. Few cities in the world have a reputation for teeming sectarians' tensions like Beirut, and the new Lebanese film The Insult does nothing to dispel that myth. It's the story of a feud between a Christian mechanic and a Palestinian refugee builder, also a Muslim, over a drain pipe. It all begins with the eponymous insult and ends in a courtroom drama that attracts the nation's journalists and even the attention of the president. Nominated for Best Foreign Language Oscar, The Insult is directed by Ziad Dueri, who shows a canny ability to use the hot summer and narrow city streets to build a sense of claustrophobic tension. As each side calls on historical wrongs as far back as the Civil War in the 1970s to justify their actions, the film recalls Asghar Fahadi's A Separation, the Iranian drama which also peeled back the layers of class and religion in a highly urban context. The insult is less fine-grained drama, more populist fable, but it's still very entertaining and very well cast. Uh, Adele Karam is powerful as the fanatic Christian, a 40-ish father-to-be with a beautiful younger wife. He seethes with anger throughout this film, almost incapable of blinking. Meanwhile, as the older Palestinian man, there's Kamel El-Bashar, a veteran theatre performer who, away from the screen, as a young activist, once spent two years in an Israeli prison. He brings a weathered, slightly weary presence to the screen uh, which won him Best Actor at the Venice Film Festival last year. Doeri gets the best from both of his actors in his tinderbox Beirut melodrama. It sneaks around the country this week. It's highly recommended from me, and it releases wide next week. Here is Zia Doeri speaking about the real-life incident that inspired his film. It was actually a pretty silly incident, totally insignificant. That occurs so many times. I was on my balcony, in Beirut a few years ago, watering my plants, and then just accidentally the water fell on one of the workers. And the, the guy yelled, and I leaned out on the balcony, and we had a heated uh, exchange of insult. You know, I, I got upset, he got upset. I threw some big words. And then uh, I went down finally in order to resolve it. I just presented my apologies, and that was them. That was a very silly incident. But a couple of days later, I was just walking in the street of Beirut, and I said, what if... What if this incident actually did not resolve very quickly? Instead of it getting it resolved, it gets progressively complicated and it goes all the way to the state level. Was there a, was I, there a religious and ethnic or, or, or a sectarian element to, you know, the, the altercation that you had as well? Uh, of course. It was 
ethnic. It was I insulted the guy's nationality. He was a Palestinian guy, and uh, I recognized him from his accent. And I sort of knew what to tell the guy to upset him the most. And I just, you know, said what was horrendous, actually. And uh, the guy actually was, was very hurt. He was not upset. He was just simply very hurt because what I said was really probably out of line. But then, you know, people always say those kind of things, probably not as, as much as I said. And then it got resolved. He, he, you know, the Lebanese history is a pretty complicated history. You know, um, It is, absolutely. It, 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 you know, it's a, we have a loaded past, have a loaded history, and we have a lot of, you know, a lot of things that are unresolved. So I knew, even since I was a child, I always knew. I, I developed like a knack for and a talent for insulting people. And, and not just insulting, but just say the thing that where it hurts the most. To, to push uh, their buttons, if you like. You developed an act to push buttons. I mean, is it, your, your film depicts this, you know, um, very honestly, I have to say, and you're being incredibly honest about your own terrible behaviour. Um, is it difficult to depict sectarian tensions in Lebanon in films? Is it a bit of a taboo? And nobody does it. Nobody dares to do it, you know, because... Uh, you know, there's a lot of red lines. You can't criticize the Palestinians. You can't criticize the left. You can't criticize the liberals. You know, the, the world is going through a phase where somehow, and I'm not saying I am right-wing at all. I'm just saying that, that there's a phase where it's the anti-Macarthism area in the world. And in Lebanon, when I breach on certain things, whether I say the Palestinian committed atrocities or the Syrian committed atrocities, it's always looked upon in a very negative light. But I always say the truth. You know, I always say my truth, at least. So certainly when the film came out in Beirut, it created a lot of debate. Like, you know, how could you say such a thing? Nobody could attack me on the content of the film because it's incontestable. But they've attacked on a manner, on, on, on my methods of thinking. But you know what? It's something that I'm used to. It. It's, it's fine. I mean, I, I've, I've never made films to offend but I have to make films that are true to me. The film does come out, I think, incredibly balanced in the end, but there, are, there is a moment in particular where, I mean, I take it you're from a Christian background as well, so is, there is a moment where um, you reference some massacres of Christian villages, and I'm no expert on Lebanese history, but that seem to have been not really addressed much in the popular discourse in Lebanon. That's the way the film portrays it, at least. I want to say something about your first tradition. The film comes out very balanced at the end. Um, I don't think it was very balanced. I think I took sides, and I took a lot of sides. It's just that I took sides, and I shifted sides every 15 minutes of the film. I took sides of the right-wing extremists at the beginning, then I, 15 minutes later in the story, I shifted, and I took sides of the Palestinian guy. I don't like to make rounded, balanced movie. Now, at the end, the message might sound like this, which is a natural progression. I thought it was dramatically important. It fits us better when you have a film about two clashing people, and the clash is very radical. It leads the country almost to a civil war. And at the end, there is some kind of a reconciliation. In that way, the audience all around the world may saw it as a balance, but it's really not that balanced. <laughs> I take your point. I take your point. You've photographed this in the teeming streets of Lebanon. You're, you're, you're right. You know, the film is a very street-level uh, kind of film. Can you tell me what sort of area you shot it in? I presume it's a traditionally Christian area. Uh, at least where Tony lives, who is this mechanic with a very short fuse. And if it was hard to get permission to shoot at street level in Beirut? Look, when I started filming, I you always try to go, in, when you do fiction, you always try to go in the most authentic places as possible. Whenever you can't, you substitute it for something that looks like it. It just happened that the area where we filmed corresponds to the story. Like the refugee camp was a real refugee camp. Where Tony lives, that was his real place where the main actor lived and grew up. I wanted to shoot in the in the courtroom because this is a courtroom drama, really. We went to the central courtroom, the biggest courtroom in, in Beirut. You know, you try to stay as much as possible faithful to the locations. Regarding the permit, the problems were not getting the permits. The problem were after the film was released. That's when problems started to happen my way. 
I don't know if you if people know that in Australia, probably not. My previous film called The Attack, uh, I was shot it in Israel, and the Lebanese law forbids any Lebanese citizen to go to Israel to shoot. This is against the law because Lebanon and Israel are considered a state of war. I, for authenticity reason, again, for the same reason, I decided to go shoot it in Israel, which created a lot of legal problems for me. So when I came, that was in 2012 with the film The Attack. Back then, the film was banned in the Arab world. And when I did back to Beirut, even though the government decided not to arrest me at that point, because they were not going to arrest a filmmaker who just put a camera in Tel Aviv, they decided to let go of it. But the movement in Lebanon, the, the pro-Palestinian factions and the BDS movement, you know, the boycott and the divestment and section, mounted a campaign against the film and against me for having been in Israel five years. When the insult came out, they went out of their holes again and they wanted to try to have the film stopped. It, it led to an arrest. I was arrested for one day and questioned by the military tribunal. And I think, you know, it, it, Lebanon is a, has some form of a democracy, but it's really not that democratic yet. It's trying. There are some forces that are trying to make it more of a totalitarian government, whether it's through the Syrian subversive occupation of Lebanon or the Iranians. And there are another faction of Lebanon who are trying to bring back Lebanon to where it was. And I felt through the crack. This is where I've had some problems. But luckily, on, on the insult, we had that year people in the government who were supporting me. So they... And so they let, they let, did they let that film, did they let the film ultimately release? Yes. Yes, it was released and it was actually presented by the Lebanese government to the Academy. We were nominated for the first time well, in the right. of Lebanon. So, you know, the, the film usually is presented to the Academy through the government. It's not a private producer. Yes, this was, Lebanon's, this was Lebanon's official Oscar entry. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And there was a huge contest about it because there are some factions in Lebanon who are trying to show the government that this film is a form of treason. See, left-wing movement, unfortunately, these days, they accuse people who don't abide by their the belief by treason or by you know, racism, this is But what is it about your film that the left doesn't like in particular? Is it the point, there is one reference, there is one reference to massacres that happened uh, where you say that those responsible were partly um, leftists. Is that the reason? Is it that particular reference? That is the only reference. I I mean, this is something that was unfathomable to them. It It was outrageous that I said that the Palestinian committed a massacre because the Palestinians for the last 50, 60 years have been, you know, they have been victimized of a terrible occupation and so on, so on. So, and the narrative was built around that to come today and make a movie by somebody who actually belonged to the left-wing movement, which me and my parents, we were, my parents were militias, you know, they sort of carried weapon. Uh, we fought, my, my parents and my cousins fought for the Palestinians and I was considered an apostate. Suddenly I was, questioning my own history and uh, for the for the left-wing movement and for the pro-palestinian it was considered a sh- not a shame but it's a, it's a sin it's a big treason because i went and i said that you guys also committed massacres the people who have built all their narrative on victimhood and suddenly you portray them as victimizers they don't like it but i was saying the truth you know it's not something that was fictional but it was fun also you know to me it was like an exercise in in an exercise in itself. I've, I've went to Israel to talk about it, I, you know, to make my previous film. The next film I'm doing about nationalism, I'm going to do it in the States, and it's going into that line of thinking also. I'm just taking uh, fundamental thinking that's going on in America, and I'm examining the other side of it. This is what, what I like to do. I don't like to do it to provoke. I don't like to do it to upset. I like to do it because it's, it's important for me to examine the other side. Don't you like to examine the other side? Sure. I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, as a as a public broadcaster, we're always. I mean, it's it, it's part of our responsibility to examine all sides as as much as is reasonably uh, possible to expect. And and I repeat, before people write in and start thinking about or objecting about what you've just said, they should see the film because I think it's a very sort of even minded film and even handed film. Let me ask you: Is there a mix of people? I mean, your film presents the Lebanese 
Lebanese society is being stratified and in particular it presents a, a section of the, the working class as being sort of in a semi-legal state and many of them right. being sort of illegally employed by the construction industry from the refugee camps. Um, so it's quite frank about these sorts of things. What's it like in the film industry? Is there a mix of people uh, working in the film industry together on sets or does the film industry tend to skew more towards the Christians or or a certain part of the Muslim population? Uh, are there Palestinians who work in the film industry? Tell me. The film industry in Lebanon, I think like any film industry in the world, people are more open to, are much more open to working with with other people from other religion or other nationalities. This is where I feel privileged working in this industry because you really get over this dividing line between religion. My crew with half of them were right-wing, half of them were left-wing, half of them were Christian, half of them were Muslims. There, there is no boundaries there. This is what I, I love working in this industry. I, I had it the same thing when I was working in Israel, when I was working with the Palestinians, when I was working in the States, in France. You know, I shot a series in France last year where most of the extras were from the far-right movement. They were voted for Marine Le Pen, and I would just, you know, they were a bit stigmatized by other people, but I find it so interesting that I can sit down with them and talk to them because they're a human being like you and me. All right, well, it's a, a fascinating film, The Insult, and, and your interview with me just now has, I think, uh, revealed something quite uh, interesting about your approach and um, the source, I suppose, of your inspiration. Thank you very much for joining us Thank on the, the Hub on Screen. It's been fascinating Thank talking you to very you. Much. Director Ziad Dueri there. His enthralling film, The Insult, is trickling out in cinemas now. It releases wide next week. All right, time to talk arts news now with Claire Nichols. Hi, Claire. Hi, Jason. Let's start at the movies today where a big-name director has walked away from the next instalment of a major film series. Yes, I, I'm breathing a sigh of relief with this one, I must say, but go on. <laughs> so I'll tell you, the, uh, the director is the Englishman Danny Boyle. You'll know him from Slumdog Millionaire and Trainspotting from 96. And the film series that he's left, you know what it is, Jason, but let me give everyone else a little musical hint. <laughs> Ah, uh, yes, I play that when I walk into the studio on Thursday mornings. <laughs> yes, DeRosso, Jason DeRosso. We're talking about the James Bond series here. Danny Boyle has been signed on to direct the 25th Bond movie, which will star the English actor Daniel Craig. Now, this partnership was announced with a lot of fanfare in May this year, with producers saying they were delighted to have the exceptionally talented Boyle on board. But this week, a new post appeared on the official James Bond Twitter account. It reads, Michael G. Wilson, Barbara Broccoli and Daniel Craig today announced that due to creative differences, Danny Boyle has decided to no longer direct Bond 25. Yeah, I never really thought he had the chops. I, I quite like him as a director, but yeah, where does this leave the next film? Well, it's, it's not quite clear. Look, this film doesn't have a title yet. It was due to begin shooting in December and to be released in October next year. And, of course, that is all now up in the air. Now, Boyle had worked on the script for this 25th Bond film with his train-spotting scriptwriter, John Hodge. It's not clear now, Jason, if that script can or will still be used. But there is another script out there, and stay with me for this, because... There was an original screenplay for Bond 25 written by the frequent Bond collaborators Neil Purvis and Robert Wade. They wrote the last six James Bond films, so all of the Daniel Craig films and two of the previous Pierce Brosnan films. And when Danny Boyle came on board with this project, he actually replaced that script with this new one by himself and Hodge. So maybe producers might go back to that original script to, to get shooting on time. Yeah. Daniel Craig is definitely staying with this project. Oh, look, we think so. Mm. The fact that his name was in that Twitter post really kind of declares that he is still on board Cements with this project. There, yeah. But as you know, there's been a lot of speculation that this will be the last time that he plays James Bond. And with all that Boyle drama, there has been those talks about who should be the next Bond have I'm resurfaced. I'm on team Idris Elba. Well, look, so many people are. So many people want Idris Elba from The Wire and Luther to play Bond. And Elba has said again and again that he's not going to be the next Bond. Um, he actually just said it in the last 24 hours. Again, he won't do it. But he's messing with us, Jason. He, I he did reckon a post, too. Yeah. He did a post on social media recently where he introduced himself as Elba, Idris Elba. And on the weekend, he <laughs> DJed a set at the Elro London Town Festival. And one guess what track he opened his set with. 
hilarious. He has such a great. He has such a great screen presence. He he's the man that other men want to be. So I reckon he'd be <laughs> Including great. Including you, maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Daniel Craig's not bad either. Just briefly, Kelly Marie Tran. Yeah, she's written a really powerful piece for the New York Times. You'll know her from Star Wars The Last Jedi, Jedi rather. She played the role of Rose Tico. And it was a role she got this huge amount of backlash for. Some fans didn't like what Rose did in that mm. movie. And in June, she actually had to delete her Twitter account after receiving this barrage of racist and threatening attacks online. She's written an article for the New York Times saying that, you know, those those attacks really confirmed feelings she's had through her life about yeah. belonging in the margins and spaces. And um, look, our friends on Stop Everything are going to talk a bit more about this story. Great uh, stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's yeah, great piece. Um, sad story, but in, in a way also, um, yeah, she's having a moment, which is great. Thank you, Claire. You might have seen actor Susan Pryor in Animal Kingdom, Top of the Lake maybe. Uh, maybe you saw her in Puberty Blues, the TV remake that is. Uh, you might have seen her in The Rover as well with Robert Pattinson. She won an actor award for her role in that one. Well, today she's on this show, The Hub on Screen. Susan talks us through five films that mean a lot to her. chosen the film Wild Strawberries, which was directed by Ingmar Bergman in 1956. It's centred around an academic or a professor. He's just about to receive his doctorate. He's quite an irascible old man and he has a nightmare that leads him to take a journey. It's an odyssey of sorts. He learns about who he was before he became this grumpy old man. I spent a lot of time with my grandmother when she was dying and um, she was quite the matriarch of our family and a very, very strong, often cold woman from an academic background. And I know that she struggled with being a woman in that world. So in this period of time when I knew she was dying, she and I had very intimate uh, moments together and at the same time I was cleaning up her house. So I went through and found found out that her favourite film was Wild Strawberries. She'd watched it eight times and I, I wonder if she looked at that old man and realised that in the future she might become that old man. I chose the British cult film With Nail and I, which has been a regular favourite. It's one of the films I've watched the most in my life for some reason. What does it say about me? It's the story of two unemployed actors living in a run-down house in Camden Town, drinking and smoking and drugging themselves into oblivion while they're waiting for the next job and they decide to go to the country for rest and recuperation and it doesn't turn out as restfully as they anticipated. It's sort of like a triage of characters, the two main characters with Nell and I and the Uncle Monty character. Uncle Monty is an ex-actor played with such relish by Richard Griffiths. It is the most shattering experience of a young man's life when one morning he awakes and quite reasonably says to himself, I will never play the Dane. Obviously, George Harrison has pulled a few of his own strings (laughs) and got While My Guitar Gently Weeps into the film and um, Jimi Hendrix 
used to great effect. Um, it's filled with eccentric characters, but the trio of uh, Richard E. Grant, as with now, Richard Griffiths as Uncle Monty and Paul McGann as I are just memorable. I've chosen the film, the Italian film, I Am Love, directed by Luca Guadagnino and starring Tilda Swinton about a bourgeois family in Milan who own a textiles company. At the beginning, a patriarch gives over the the reins to two of the younger members of the family. Um, There was an expectation that it would just be one and so instantly you cause tension. Tilda Swinton plays Emma Recchi. She is a Russian living in Italy and sort of she's absolved all her Russian past uh, to try and fit in with this austere family full of rituals and servants and a big house and things happen have to happen this way. And yeah, this I don't think this film will be to everyone's taste, to be honest. And I, and I, in some ways it's not the most perfect film, but for me... I loved the connection to Italy. I chose the documentary Sherpa, which is directed by Jennifer Pedham. It focuses on a Sherpa who has made 21 ascents of Mount Everest and he leads the team for an expedition company. It explores the Sherpa's culture and spiritual relationship with the mountain and the risks involved to make money or the climb possible for foreign climbers. In 2014, an ice avalanche killed 16 Sherpas and I know that Jen was there to do a story specifically on Sherpas and their point of view, but she sort of found herself in the middle of a a really passionate battle Jen Pedham has a relationship with the Sherpas and she also has a relationship with the people who um, run those expeditions. And when you look at this film and you see the intimacy of what she captured, intimate spiritual rituals that the Sherpas do before they climb the mountain. Also the footage that she she got of the one of the families that lost... Uh, their husband and father in the avalanche. It was very, very moving and I know that it was a very private and personal thing to shoot. Jen always seems to find herself in these situations where she's in the right place at the right time where something she wasn't expected happens and, and then the drama just skyrockets. Piano um, was directed by Jane Campion and produced by Jan Chapman. There's a story set in mid-19th century of a Scottish woman and her daughter who arrive on the west coast of New Zealand because the woman has been bought by one of the new settlers. And it's a story of her arrival with her huge piano and her relationship with her daughter and the journey that she goes through in a kind of love triangle and her love of music. What's in it then? A bad step? It's my mother's piano. <laughs> Benz, tell them to carry in pairs. Take all the boxes. She cannot speak. She has been mute since she was six. So she uses music and sign language to communicate and it's very powerful. I think since I first saw it, it has been my favourite film of all time. Um, I have a connection to the Scottish link. The music is insanely beautiful and all connected to emotion. Um, There were times I couldn't breathe and there there were times where I couldn't stop crying. 
Actor Susan Pryor there with some of her favourite films for our Top Shelf segment. Susan currently appears in the Stan series The Second and the Supernatural web series. Check it out, Jade of Death. You're listening to The Hub on screen. Coming to you from ABC RN, on air, on podcast and via the ABC Listen app. Your host is Jason DeRosso. Some other films releasing in cinemas this week. Uh, The Happy Time Murders is a Meet the Feebles-inspired black comedy featuring puppets and live actors, or meat sacks, as they're called in this film. Uh, It's directed by Brian Henson, son of Muppets founder Jim Henson. It stars Melissa McCarthy, uh, who plays opposite a little man made of blue felt. Now, she's a cop. He is her disgraced former partner who's become a jaded small-time private eye. There's no love lost between them, but they team up again to investigate a series of homicides involving puppets from a 1980s children's show called Happy Time, hence the title of the film. An amusing premise that needed a lot more polish for a film that features puppets on drugs, making porn and dying in all sorts of gruesome ways, The Happy Time Murders is surprisingly dull. Its funniest moment is Melissa McCarthy trying to kick down a door. Its second funniest moment is the one I'm about to play you, where McCarthy uh, snorts uh, the puppet's drug of choice, sugar, and passes out for a moment. Uh, There's a warning, uh, some strong language lies ahead. Look at this, Sacramento Red Hot, grade 8 hyper sucrose. You're to put a human in a diabetic coma for a month, but to a puppet pure ecstasy. I'm not doing that. Do it, mate, Zach. Take it. <laughs> oh, sorry about your dead human friend, Phillips. Wait for it. Yeah, it sounds a lot funnier than it actually is. And it's one of those films that ends with a blooper reel that runs on screen as the end credits roll, showing, in this case, puppeteers cracking up basically at their own work mid-take. And it's just so unfortunate that they're having more fun than the audience. You'd be better off spending your money on a new Australian film that's also out this week. West of Sunshine is the debut feature from writer-director Jason Raftopoulos. Now, he spoke about making this film independently on this show a couple of weeks ago. You can find it on the Hub on Screen website. Uh, He was speaking to producer Hannah Reish. The film is told over a single day. It's a road movie set in the suburbs of Melbourne about a father and son, a vintage muscle car, and a gambling debt that has to be paid by nightfall. Has a lot of heart, this film, sympathetic to the plight of its flawed, self-sabotaging 30-something protagonist played by Damien Hill as he struggles to maintain dignity in the eyes of his child. He uh, sports tattoos and a longish haircut that's vaguely reminiscent of Keith Urban or perhaps at least in terms of the haircut, Nick Janopoulos. And it makes his character seem a, a touch Peter Panish. There's a, definitely a vanity about him, which I think the film addresses in one of its most powerful and affecting scenes towards the end. Unfortunately, though, Raftopoulos can't quite sustain the emotional rhythm and dramatic momentum throughout. The elements are there, but the execution stutters unsurprisingly perhaps for a first film that is this ambitious and uh, modestly resourced. But it's worth a look. It's West of Sunshine. All right, well, uh, that's it for the show for another week. I'm Jason DeRosso. You can catch me on Twitter at JDRRR. Do remember if you're subscribing to this show as uh, a pod to leave a review and a star rating, there'll be more of The Hub on Screen next week. Same place, same time. See you then. 